Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be a part of the show here, you can always uh, contact me on any of the contact links in the description of the show, as well as give me a call at uh, 303-832-0217. That is the listener hotline. That is the contact number if you want to give us a shout out. Yeah. All right. Uh, Have you noticed how traffic has made a roaring comeback over the last couple of weeks since the end of the mask mandate? Uh, It's happened here in Denver. It's happened in many parts of the country, especially in the evenings and on the weekends and at events. I saw a video of downtown Nashville just the other day, and it was people everywhere, thousands of people. It was like an arena worth of people that were out at the uh, this one area in Nashville where the, the bars and the restaurants and the clubs are, and it was just a the, the, the proverbial sea of people. Uh, I was heading out to the one of the tours of the I-70 Central Project here in Denver uh, late morning last weekend, and there was tra- there were there were traffic jams on the weekend. It's getting busier and busier out there, and I think I am destined to be going back downtown to the studio. My guess is by the end of June, and I think there will be businesses that will be doing the same as mine. There will be more people heading back. Now that the mask mandates are pretty much over in most areas around the country or will be lifting for the most part in the next couple of weeks, I think we are going to see more businesses opening up, getting people back to the office. Not uh, every business, and there will be still some of that balance between work from home and work in an office. Because I I do, and I've talked to other people who believe that there is a... uh, a, a missing piece in the work environment without everybody being together. And think about it this way, too. As I was talking to somebody uh, uh, the other week about it, last week about it, um, it w- I was saying, well, how are you going to train somebody? How are you going to have new people come in and train them if, if everybody's working from home? You really can't. You can't mentor somebody to do your job or do jobs like your job or at your company if, if everybody's not at the company. You can't do that from a home setting. And I think that means there's going to be a lot more traffic on the roads. It, it'll be interesting to see how these traffic patterns will change from obviously what we've been experiencing over the last 15 months, from from a lot of traffic to zero traffic to it building in the summer. We've talked, we've had a lot of shows about that over the last several months. And, and I don't think traffic is going to shift overnight, but I think it's going to be evolving. And, and you know, the, the traffic pattern, it changes every summer anyway at the end of the school year. Because you take all those teachers, all those tens of thousands of teachers from all the different school districts around any major city, and you take all those folks off the roadway, we were talking about over hundreds of thousands of people not driving to work at, at in the early mornings, and that changes the traffic pattern, and it's it happens every single summer. Now, last summer obviously was different because 
uh, we had so many people, the kids that were they were learning from home, and and it was just it was just a whole different summer, obviously last summer compared to what it will be this summer, and then obviously next year. So I, the the traffic patterns always change in the summer and then start to shift again back to more regular patterns that we've seen over over years and years in the fall. But it, only time will tell how many people are coming back to offices and, and how the uh, uh, feelings will be for people coming on to uh, public transit. If, if the buses are going to start getting uh, a little bit more crowded, if the trains are going to start seeing more passengers. I, I My feeling is that, that the public transit is still going to be suffering uh, for ridership. It's, it's still not going to be as robust as it used to be in, in years past. Uh, and that could mean there's more traffic on the roadways with those people who might have been apt to go on the train or the bus are not comfortable with that, and they're still going to be driving. There, 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 we still have people uh, that, that I know that are going to be wearing a mask in, in a group setting all the time, no matter what the mandates are, no matter what the government says you should or should not do, they, they are still because they are either compromised of some way or they just didn't get any of the usual colds and viruses and sicknesses that they usually get on a every single year they didn't have that this year because everybody's wearing a mask so uh they, i know there will be people and, and people will choose to wear their mask if they if that's what they want to do then that's what they want to do but but i think that will translate also into some people not wanting to get back on a public trans transit and therefore we will see those people who do have to head back aren't comfortable with transit on the roadways and again that also changes the traffic patterns um so it'll be uh it'll be an evolving situation with with the traffic um and 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 by the way here's another note uh, at this week's end because today is tuesday i am actually heading out to florida for some western wewaxation as Elmer Fudd would say. I didn't do a very good Elmer Fudd there, uh, <laughs> as he would say. Uh, I'm going to be taking to the friendly skies. Airports, you know, are getting busier. TSA, they are actually saying that they they set new, basically, high marks for the number of passengers they screen every single week. Uh, haven't taken a, a, a flight since uh, March. So it'll be interesting to me to see how the airports have become more busy, how the flights have become more busy. The airlines are scheduling more flights. They're also having more trouble with bad passengers who are not behaving on their flights and being bad. Um, and they're giving out more fines to passengers, too, uh, for people who are behaving badly on flights. And, th- and that's still one of the areas where the mask mandate has not been lifted. I, I wonder when that will happen now that the CDC has come out and says you don't have to wear your mask, but in an airport you still do. On any kind of um, public transportation you do, and on the airplanes you still do. And I have a feeling, ju- this is just a feeling, that those mask mandates will stay in place for a little bit longer. And actually, some of the airlines might ask passengers to keep the mask on all the time. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see, like we have in the past in, in Asian cultures, um, those folks wearing masks. Because that we remember way before the pandemic, we would see 
folks from uh, Asia wearing masks all the time. And it was an unusual concept for people in the United States to see folks wearing masks all the time on a uh, on transit or in a plane or or wherever where there were people gathered. But I think Americans now are more comfortable with it. They get it now. And yeah, but and I think you will see more folks wearing masks, even if they didn't have to, whether it's on a plane or not a plane, even if the mask mandate lifts on on aircraft, but they are still on there for now. Um, and maybe that will change as we get uh, into the summer travel season. But I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how busy it will be at the airport and how busy it will be in Florida when I get there, because I'm going from a uh, place that was all masks all the time here in Colorado to Florida, where it's no masks anytime. <laughs> See how it's going to be when I get there. Uh, this trip's actually for my in-laws, their 50th anniversary, where originally we were going to go on a cruise from New York up to Canada, but Canada closed down their ports. The cruise boats are still not sailing yet. Maybe July, August, uh, they'll be sailing again. Um, so instead, we're going to go into Florida, and we have no plans except just to go to the beach, uh, maybe rent a boat. Uh, I'm probably going to get severely sunburned. I'll complain about it. I'll cry about it. Put the lotion on, and I'll silently cry when I try to sleep because the pain of having anything touch my skin will be too great. And and I'm going to eat grouper sandwiches every single meal of the day, including breakfast. <laughs> Why not? What better way to start the day than with a grouper sandwich? <laughs> All right. Well, coming up in a minute. I'm going to be uh, significantly increasing the IQ level of this this show. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Paul Murphy, who is a paleontologist with Paleo Solutions here in Denver. And Dr. Murphy inspected some fossils that were found in the dirt at the I-70 Central Project. We talked last week about the I-70 Central Project and uh, what kind of technology they have, what kind of a... Uh, a monumental task it is to go from an uh, above-ground bridge highway to a lowered uh, section with a tunnel. And they've been digging into some earth around uh, the north side of downtown Denver that hasn't been touched in a long, long time. And naturally, you're going to start digging up some fossils. And they that's what they found. They found the tooth of, some, uh, of, a, of a camel-like creature called Camelops. <laughs> Who knew they had camels in Colorado, right? So we'll talk to um, Dr. Murphy about all, because I think that's pretty interesting. I, I think it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it, I, I, it interests me. So we're going to, we're going to talk to Dr. Murphy coming up in just a minute. Uh, first, I wanted to get to Ed from Frederick, who wrote me a uh, comment. Ed said, what's driving you crazy on the interstates? You're not supposed to cross a solid white line. In the city, all the turn-only lanes are wholly marked with solid white lines. Why are city turn lanes not marked with short dashed lines like the exit-only lanes on the interstate? Is it any wonder you see so many people breaking the law on the interstates? Well, and there's a misconception by many drivers that you're not allowed to cross a solid white line off or on the interstates. It's legal to do so, although discouraged to cross a single solid white line, it's only illegal to cross double white lines on or off the interstate. And in fact, there's actually one uh, on-ramp I know of here in Metro Denver that uh, has two white lines. There's one for the main line part of the interstate where folks are driving. That is a solid white line. But for the folks that are coming onto the interstate from the ramp, 
they actually have a dashed line, not the short little stubby square ones, but the longer dashed line. So the white lines, it, so the folks that are that on the side where they have the solid line, they are discouraged, not illegal, but discouraged from crossing that line into that other lane. And then the people that are merging on, they have the free reign to get into the other lane because they have the dashed line. I mean, really, if you look at uh, the double yellow, it's really one yellow for your side and one yellow for the other side. It's not the double yellow for everybody. It's a double, it's a single yellow, don't cross. And it's a, <laughs> just people don't really look at the road markings that often or, or don't remember that often, I guess. But, you know, all states, including Colorado, follow the guidance for roadway markings from the Federal Highway Administration's Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun read. Uh, if you ever want to get to sleep pretty fast. Well, in, in chapter 3B, in the pavement and curb markings section, it says where crossing the lane line markings is discouraged, the lane line marking shall consist of a normal or wide solid white line. As for single solid white lines indicating turn lanes on city streets, the MUTCD guidance in section 3B says this, on approaches to intersections, a solid white line marking should be used to separate a through lane from an added mandatory turn lane. And the key word in there is should. So you can have differences in the highway markings and the city street markings. Because bottom line, pavement markings on a city street or on the interstates will lead you the right way if you're making a turn but unless otherwise posted by a sign, a single white line is just discouraged to cross, but it isn't illegal to cross. So there you go, Ed. In our last episode, I talked to the project director for the Central 70 project here in Denver. That's that project rebuilding I-70 on the north side of downtown Denver. And we talked about all the interesting technology that they have as part of this new tunnel. I also went on a couple of tours of the project, including one with my family. Brought the kids out, brought the wife out. She actually thought it was pretty cool. Uh, I thought it was great. That's why I went, kept going back, and the kids had a, had a ball. Well, when I went on one of my tours, I was asking uh, some folks there at the project if they found anything interesting as they were building out this tunnel and digging in the ground, because this is untouched dirt that hasn't been unearthed in, well, forever, I guess. Well, they told me they found a the remnants of an old elementary school. Basically, they they bought they knocked it down, uh, built a new school on top of it, and they found some remnants of uh, uh, asbestos in this old stuff. And so they had to take it out and, and haul it away and, and dispose of it properly. It's probably why the contractor originally just knocked it down and built over it because they didn't want to deal with the asbestos. But they also told me that they found some bones. And that these bones were from an ancient camel. Yeah, when, I, when I think about Colorado, I don't think camel. Uh, but the DOT called out the experts from Paleo Solutions to come take a look. And I wanted to talk more about what they found. And so I invited Vice President and Paleontology Program Director for Paleo Solutions, Dr. Paul Murphy, to the show. Dr. Murphy has a very long resume and a lot of credential stuff. You can read all about it. If you look at the description of this show, you can get a link to seeing everything that uh, Dr. Murphy has done uh, in his career. Dr. Murphy, thank you for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Sure. 
Now, like I said, when I was down there at the tour, I asked if they found anything interesting. They found the remnants of that old elementary school, and they also found some bones. So tell me how you were contacted by the DOT, and tell me what they thought that they had found. Right. So basically, it's a little bit different than that. So CDOT has required the contractor out there, who is Kiwit, um, to hire a paleontologist um, throughout the company while they're excavating. Um, so uh, the concern was, and, and so that's basically what my company does is we um, rescue fossils from construction sites and we put them in museums. So we, we work closely with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science um, and we've got a curation agreement with them so that all the fossils that are found on most of our projects in Colorado really go to the Denver Museum. Um, the, so, so it was a CDOT requirement that Kiwit has to pay for as part of their environmental uh, requirements for their project. And we are, we, our, our scope of work was to be out there um, whenever they encountered Denver formation. So the geology of the city of Denver is, is that most of the city is underlain by a bedrock unit, which is basically from the age of the dinosaurs called the, day, the Denver Formation. Um, and it actually contains the, the Cretaceous tertiary, like the dinosaur extinction event is recorded in it. So that was the main concern because it produces an awful lot of plant fossils that are like rainforest type plants. And then it also, uh, produces the occasional dinosaur, and then it produces smaller mammals like um, from after the age of the dinosaurs that were repopulating the earth after that meteorite impact. So that was what they were care caring about. So geotechnical studies had shown that the Denver formation was about 40 feet, give or take, throughout that corridor between I-25 and Colorado Boulevard. Um, which is really pretty deep for the Denver formation because in many places in Denver, it's at the surface, including right along I-25 where, you, where your background is, as a matter of fact. Like when they were doing T-Rex, we found palm tree stumps and things like right there at university. Um, so as it happens, though, we never, so far on the project, they've never gotten down to that um, 60 like 66 to about um, 58 million year old rock unit, the Denver Formation. Um, they've only encountered shallower sediments. And those are the sediments that, they, that these fossils that we did find came out of. They're a lot younger. They are from the Ice Age. And they're more like about oh, 10 to 20,000 years old. We don't know. It's possible that they could be datable, um, but we haven't done that at this point might be interesting, but um, so basically what happened was when they, when the project, if it did hit Denver formation, we were supposed to be out there full time. But since it didn't, we were going out there once a week to do spot checks to see where they, you know, to see what types of geology they were hitting. And also part of that was because it's kind of hard for most construction people to tell Denver formation from soil because Denver formation is really muddy and it, and it looks a lot like soil. It's just way older. 
So, so what happened was that in between one of our weekly spot checks, um, one of the construction pieces of equipment um, unearthed, like dug up these bones and some of them were um, set aside and then we were called to go examine them. Um, and then a couple of them were found by our monitor who went out there and found them on a spoils pile. So and what we're talking about are basically um, two teeth of a camel, um, an ice age camel that lived here. And then also a tooth, uh, upper molar tooth of a horse. Um, most people don't know this, but horses evolved in North America, but they went extinct here at the end of the ice age. And they, and they were only reintroduced when the Spanish got here um, about 500 years ago. So um, we also found a, a few other unidentifiable bones, um, but they were, all of these things came from a geologic deposit that commonly produces things like mammoth teeth and tusks and horse teeth and, you know, typical ice age mammals um, around the Denver area. Um, but we weren't out there to look for those as much as we were out there looking for the much older stuff. What happened to all the camels? You said the horses uh, <laughs> became extinct. Did the camels the same way they became extinct? Because when you when you hear Colorado, you don't think camel. Exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of animals, including camels, lions, cheetahs, um, rhinos, elephants that used to live here that that went extinct at the towards the end of the ice age. In fact about 75% of the large mammals that used to live in North America went extinct at the end of the ice age and they never came back. So what we have now is a depauperate, like very low diversity mammal fauna that was left on the Great Plains, right? It's basically like antelope, deer, you know, prairie dogs. Um, but a lot of the big animals that used to live here, um, including the predators are gone. Um, the lions, the cheetahs, the dire wolves, giant ground sloths, well, they're not a predator, um, mammoths, mastodons, um, these big herbivores, and bison, though, bison are still around, um, and they were, they were here then. So camels, camels um, didn't evolve in North America, um, but they were here, and of course, um, many people don't realize this, but llamas, and alpacas in South America, they're also camels. So there was a lot of interchange between North America and South America as the land bridge in Central America was closed and opened over the years and it allowed animals to flow back and forth, migrate across. Um, and uh, I think that most people associate camels as being a big humped animal that lives in the desert. And uh, the camels that we, like this species, camelops, it's a pretty large animal, um, but it may not have had humps. There's no way to tell because humps don't have bones in them and we don't have any soft tissue remains of these animals. Um, but if they're more closely related to llamas and alpacas, then they didn't have humps. Um, and they, they're basically just big grazing animals. They would have eaten grass on the plains and they would have probably herded alongside with antelope. Um, in those days, elks were also um, plains animals too. Um, so it was very different. 
And so yeah, people are very surprised there were camels here. Well, it reminds me of that old joke of what do you call a three humped camel pregnant? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm speaking to Dr. Paul Murphy, the vice president and paleontology program director for Paleo Solutions here in Denver. They have offices across the country. What was your first reaction when you saw those bones, when you looked at what they found? Was it, this is remarkable, this is just, eh, all right, whatever. Did, did you know what it was? Did, were you astounded by it? Were you just, eh, this is just an average bone? Well, it's always cool. Um, every time something is discovered that nobody's seen before. Um, and, you know, we, we weren't expecting Ice Age mammals, although we realized it was perfectly feasible that they would be found. Um, but then again, we also know that in lots of, of building construction projects along the front range, these things are found or not found. They're, they're routinely exposed and probably never even noticed by construction crews and just uh, buried over again. Many records in the Denver Museum, there's many records of of like mammoth teeth and tusks and um, Pleistocene Ice Age bones that were found in basement excavations in Denver. Um, so for a long time, it's been known that there that these animals are there. So to answer your question, yeah, it's always cool and remarkable to see them. Um, but you know, we we also are like, okay, well, it's uh, Broadway alluvium, so it's latest Pleistocene. And it's not surprising to us that there's camels in it because we know they were here um, from other fossils, but it's still cool. Did you know right away what you had or did you have to take some uh, steps to identify what those bones were? No, we know pretty much right away, especially with teeth, because mammals all have um, teeth that are identifiable to species level including humans, so you don't need any other bones. If you have a single molar tooth of a mammal, you can identify it right away. So, you know, the horse, the camel, it's like, um, we, we as paleontologists are trained to recognize or identify things based on, because most of all, all fossils are broken up and you don't get the whole skeleton hardly ever. So we're really good with with learning how to identify bits and pieces. Um, and teeth are very common in the fossil record because they're harder than bones because they get covered with enamel. Um, some of them are the size of a pinhead and then others are like your shark teeth that you used to find, but they're all covered with enamel, which makes them harder with bone, harder than bone. And in the, luckily for us, in the case of mammals, um, we can identify whatever it is um, just with one tooth. How do you handle something like this? Did you scour those waste piles? Did you then ask the construction crews, hey, where did you find this? Can we look for some more? Is that what it was? Or was just, let's just take these and then head out and, and, and let them dig some more? No, no, that's a good question. After these were found, um, we went out there and did a thorough inspection of all of those spoils piles. And then we actually changed the level of effort of our monitoring to full time instead of a once a week spot check. So we were out there for several weeks when they were digging in the same area, 
just to make sure that if anything else was uncovered, we'd be there when it was found in case it was something larger that needed to be jacketed, um, which could very well happen. Um, especially, like I said, it's mammoths are not uncommon in the Denver area, um, in, in certain parts of Denver. So uh, if you find one of those, of course, it would just be a bigger operation to collect it and remove it from the site. So yeah, we scoured the area and then we're out there for several weeks full time looking for more while they were in the same sediments. Because wasn't there a or a T Rex or not T Rex, but a, a Triceratops type fossil located just a little bit north of there up in Thornton, North Glen, a, a construction site just off of I twenty five. I think it was near one hundred fourth, hundred twentieth, something like that. Yeah, my company was involved with that too. That was an excavation that that. That was uh, in August of 2017 or 18, I forget. Um, and it was a, that's Denver formation too. Um, Denver formation at the surface of a police station, fire station, construction site. I can't remember the address, but it's way up north on almost at, at um, Northwest Parkway. And, um, and that was a very well preserved um, Taurosaurus, so it's it's related to Triceratops. It's a Ceratopsian dinosaur um, called Taurosaurus. It's, it's the, the most complete specimen of that dinosaur that's known and the best one that's the only one that's ever been found in Colorado before. So that specimen was ex excavated and prepared at the Denver Museum, and it just went on display a couple months ago on the second floor. I'm speaking to Dr. Paul Murphy. He is the Paleontology Program Director, as well as the Vice President for Paleo Solutions here in Denver. You, you always say that it's cool to see these fossils, and I, I'm sure it is. And so what is it like then when you, when you have, let's say, you found them or you have these bones, and, and you're driving them back to the office? I mean, you're holding something, you have something in your car that hasn't been seen for tens of thousands of years. So it, I mean, you have to think that that's kind of interesting that nobody else knows what's going on in your car, but you have some, <laughs> you have some material that's tens of thousands of years old. Never really thought about it like that, but I guess it's because we are pretty much in that frame of mind every day. I mean, we're, we're collecting stuff all across the Western U S every single day. Um, sometimes it'll be like, for example, in California, we'll excavate, a fossil whale and put a huge jacket on a flatbed truck to drive it to a museum. And then it's kind of like, Ooh, you know, obvious big, huge fossil on a flatbed truck driving through LA. Right. Um, and, and, but then in this case, yeah, we have a couple camel teeth and a horse tooth and a baggie in the car, taking it back to our office. And then it's stored um, along with anything else we find from that project and other projects um, that are going on right now. And then when the project's done with, um, we'll write a report on these things and everything will end up at the museum. Are the bones remarkable in any way? Are they a good example or just average camel horse teeth? Um, well, they're, they are not the same species as modern horses and camels. Um, they're both larger a little bit, 
Um, and they're actually very well preserved, these particular teeth. Um, so they're mineralized. So in other words, they're heavier than you would expect, heavier and harder than you would expect to find on a modern camel or horse. Um, they're sometimes bones of that age can be incredibly brittle and broken up like millions of fragments. And these are pretty solid, so they're well-preserved, which is nice. All the material that you've collected so far, you said you're just going to hold on to it and then donate it later at the end of the, at the end, total end of the project, or are you just going to do it in, in little stages or how does that work? Well, you know, it depends. Um, sometimes if we're collecting tons and tons of fossils and we don't have room to store them, then we'll take it to the museum. Um, and that often happens with Denver formation projects where we have hundreds of fossil leaves, for example. But in this case, storage isn't an issue and it's, and it's more convenient for the museum as far as their process of, of accessioning specimens. If we bring everything in at once instead of getting them chunks of it at a time over a time period, because the, you know, the museum will charge um, for curation of these. They'll charge cataloging the specimens and placing them in their collection for the Nopia storage fee. Um, so for them, it's easier to take care of that all at once. Oh, so it's not a donation where you're giving them and, and they're saying, thank you for giving us some bones. They are charging you to take, take it off your hands. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be in some cases, museums we work with will, um, they'll take stuff for free if it's really exciting and they, and it's, it's the research mission of their institution, but on a day-to-day -day basis um, with construction projects really across the West, um, they, the museums don't have enough resources to take in all this material and care for it and store it um, for free. So they need to charge in order to be able to support their institution, their staff and everything. And so um, in this case, the project, the um, it's usually, in most cases, it's the, the project itself that ends up putting the bill for fossils that are found. Same thing with archaeological artifacts. Then why don't you just um, skip the museum and just sell them like you see over when you know you go down to the uh, Cave of the Winds and they have the little gift shop and you can buy those little fossils. Why don't you, why don't you set up a little gift shop and start selling fossils? Well, that's that is. Um, well, I mean, that could be allowable in certain states, um, but we operate under permits issued by the federal government in the state of Colorado, and the intent of those is to make sure that these things are available for education and, you know, public programming and, use, and re scientific research into the future. So um, that's never an option for us, and uh, we're, we're glad about that. Um, and, you know, but it does happen in certain states and other countries. Um, in Colorado, to be specific, we're working on this project, which is overseen by CDOT. Um, and so we, we have to adhere to whatever environmental regulations and conditions that are part of that project. And, um, and that's typically the state of Colorado, but it's also federal um, highway, FHWA, Federal Highway Administration, um, and their 
NEPA guidelines, National Environmental Policy Act, um, that protects these these and other resources that are within highway corridors. That's fascinating. It's just really fascinating to know this because I, I do know that for CDOT projects that they've found other things and that they've consulted with archaeologists and with geologists in, in the past because they found some, I think it was on a Santa Fe project, they actually found some uh, American Native American Indian uh, artifacts of some sort. But um, that was a while back. We, we work on CDOT projects all the time. Um, and, you know, related to your question earlier, you're asking about that um, Taurosaurus from Thornton. And in that case, um, there was a little bit of confusion at the beginning. The, you know, the city of Thornton was wondering like, oh, wow, do we own this? Can we keep it? Um, what is our or do we do we even have to do anything with it at all? Like, it's an option for us to just like disregard it altogether. I mean, they they weren't going to do that, but they were just wondering what their legal choices were. And as it turns out, because a, a, the city of Thornton is a munici- municipality or it's a subdivision of the state of Colorado, and that means the state of Colorado owns those fossils. Um, this was city of Thornton land. It wasn't private. It wasn't a private house. Um, if it had been a private house, then that landowner, the, the homeowner, could have kept the fossil and sold it on eBay or done whatever they want with it legally. Although we would hope um, in Colorado, at least in the Denver area, we get a lot of donations. Um, a lot of times, a landowner, if they find something on property, will call the museum and be happy to donate it. In California, where we do a lot of work, um, Fossils, any scientifically important fossil that's found on private property is not the property of the landowner. It has to go to the museum and people there are just used to that. But you go to like Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota, um, we deal with with, uh, a lot of landowners up there and they'll never donate it because they just want, they just want it, you know. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because when I, when I had a house over in uh, Highlands Ranch, I'm in Castle Pines now. But when I was looking at the, the information about the land, it, it actually, as I recall, any, anything that was found basically under the surface of the dirt, uh, you know, the top, under the surface of the grass, basically, it was the property of the railroad. They owned a lot of the mineral rights and other rights to the land that was in that area. And the, I mean, the railroad is miles away down there along Santa Fe. Uh, so one interesting thing about that, too, is um, recent court cases in Colorado, well, in Montana, actually, have um, come down on the side of landowners who are arguing that fossils should be part of the surface estate. And so, you know, that has all sorts of ramifications. Um, basically, landowners were like, hey, you know, this dinosaur is weathering onto the surface, but hey, it's also 10 feet underneath the surface because it's so big. And so the courts had to decide one way, one way or the other. And it, you know, to me, it it makes sense. But then again, we also know that in many other countries, um, anything that is fossil related would be the property of the state. Um, basically, anything that is under the surface of your property, or even sitting on it, if it's a fossil, it's not you. It's not yours. Um, even if it's like, and so it's, 
it's, it, you know, not always enforceable, but that's the way it's supposed to be in like some South American countries, some European countries. And the U.S. is actually unusual in the fact that landowners own their fossils on their land. And finally, Dr. Murphy, th- thank you again so much for your time, Vice President and Paleontology Program Director for Paleo Solutions here in Denver. The, the project isn't quite done. They have only finished one half of the tunnel project, so they have to start digging out the other side. They have to tear down the viaduct and then dig out that dirt that's under there, which was I-70. I mean, that hasn't been touched again just, I mean, for what, uh, 60, 70, 80 years? So, I mean, are, are you expecting or hoping to find maybe the rest of the camel or other camels or other anything? We are, you know, um, it could be that they hit Denver formation on that side. Um, but even if they don't, there's the, there's, they will still be going through the same age sediments that these fossils came from. So it's quite possible. Um, I would say a good chance that they will unearth other fossils. And, you know, it's great that the people working this project were alert enough to see that something had something unusual had been brought to the surface um, and that they saved that stuff. There's other projects we worked on where the construction people would either ignore it or not even see it or intentionally, you know, sure nobody ever saw it again um, because they're concerned about the cost. But again, in Denver, we don't really find that as much. It's more like, oh, cool. This is really awesome. Let's do what needs to be done. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was. I, I just thought it would have been cool for for them to find you know a belt buckle from the 1800s or something. You know, some old Denver West uh, artifact, something like that. But you know, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you know we're we're not doing the archaeology. I don't even know if they're. I don't. I, you know more than I do because you went to that presentation out there. Um, where they were talking about the archaeology or the historical stuff. Um, but, I mean, there's got to be a ton of that going on. And, I mean, and, you know, the Denver Basin is a great place for, for paleontology. The only problem is it's covered with Denver for the most part. So the only time you really get to find stuff is when they're digging somewhere, you know, except for there's some sites out in eastern Colorado, east of Colorado Springs and, out by Golden, for example. But other than that, the city is covering all the good sites. Well, again, this has been fascinating for me and a real pleasure to learn all this stuff. Uh, Dr. Paul Murphy, the Vice President and Paleontology Program Director for Paleo Solutions here in Denver. They're actually all over the country. You can find them online, Paleo Solutions, and you can get Dr. Murphy's, uh, the link to his bio in the description of this show as well. Thanks again so much for being here and explaining all this to us on the World Famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Well, cool. Well, thanks a lot for for, uh, chatting with me. And if you have any other questions, uh, just let me know. Definitely. Definitely. It's been fascinating. Thanks a lot. I I appreciate all your time. Okay. Take care. Now that is one smart guy. I I don't know about you, and I know it's a little bit off our our transportation uh, topic, uh, but I thought it was fascinating. And, 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 uh, we, you know, we've had some really smart people on the show and, and, and Dr. Murphy is obviously in that group and, and deservedly so. Uh, and I hope all of this is making me smarter. I, I, I'm not sure about that, but, uh, here's to Heekman Hope Alive that it's all making me 
a smarter person. Uh, thanks again to Dr. Murphy for uh, explaining all that stuff to us. Camelops. Imagine that. Ima- just imagine a mastodon or a camelops uh, roaming around the eastern plains of the United States. <laughs> that would be, oh, man. All right, well, thanks again for being here. If you want to contact the show, all the contact links, uh, as well as Dr. Murphy's contact links, are all there on the description of this show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.